0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the twice weekly podcast uh, where we delve deep in our time together. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Uh, Thank you for all of those who have been to the live shows in recent days. I'm on a never-ending tour like Bob Dylan at the moment. Um, It's uh, Brighton on April the 24th, King's Place on May the 15th, and The Blurb for those... Uh, concerts becoming completely delusional for those shows uh will be with the uh podcast where you can get tickets and we will gather for brand new shows to make sense of it all uh yeah it is another month these months are racing by so for those of you who kindly subscribe to patreon there will be another bonus podcast for april And it's going to be the last in this series of the troublemakers, those who have in various ways ended up focusing on things they believe or strategic approaches that they thought appropriate, which were utterly disruptive in different ways. And we've had Tony Benn, Enoch Powell, Nigel Farage, and the last one at the suggestion of a listener, actually, it only just makes it in many respects, but he's a fascinating character, and he does make it is David Owen, Lord Owen, youthful labor foreign secretary in the early seven in the late seventies uh and then one of the gang of four who split from labor to form the s d p uh but he was never at ease with the approach of the other gang of four, the other three members, and that's really when he definitely became a troublemaker uh, and a challenger, and and his views have been fascinating all the way through, including, as I shall uh, report when uh, you get that bonus podcast, his approach in the 2017 election, when he became a fan of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and donated to Corbyn's Labour Party, thinking that manifesto was close to the SDP's 83 manifesto. So anyway, he's a fascinating figure. uh, And that will be the bonus Patreon podcast for April. Uh, It tells us so much about the politics of the Late 70s, 80s, and beyond as well, uh, via this particular uh, troublemaker. Um, If it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on uh, some of the themes that um, erupt around the decision by the Labour Party NEC to block Corbyn from standing as a Labour candidate in Islington North because. In, in my view, it's one of those intriguing stories where nothing is quite right. I find myself taking a different view to orthodoxy on virtually every element of it. And of course, it is uh, multi-layered. Uh, then we've got some great questions from you. I've had, uh, for some reason, this week, hundreds of questions. So I'll have a bit of an announcement on that front uh, when we get to question time. So let's get going. Corbin. Starmer. Uh, Now, as uh, we have explored briefly before on this podcast, I take a different position uh, on this to a lot of you, and uh, certainly media orthodoxy, in that um, uh, I think it is a disproportionate step and strategically counterproductive uh, for Keir Starmer to have gone as far as barred Jeremy Corbyn from standing. I know all the arguments in favour of it um, and have followed many equivalents over the years. It means candidates in marginal seats, especially in the Red Wall. If Corbyn comes up, they'll be able to say he's not even a member of the party. It frightens other people. Starmer is in such control at the moment, on the left, to absolutely behave themselves with a kind of discipline. Uh, So Starmer will be able to argue he's wholly in control of the party. All the arguments, and of course, um, although this wasn't put as the reason uh, at the NEC meeting where Corbyn was barred, the whole anti-Semitism furore which triggered the suspension of Corbyn in the first place. But already I see the pattern emerging that worries me about all of this, which is this. And it happened to uh, uh, Neil Kinnock, it happened in a different context to uh, Ed Miliband. Nothing quite works out as a leader dares to hope it might uh, in these situations. So we have the drama of Corbyn uh, being removed uh, as candidate. And then you get the cheers from the mainstream newspapers, the Times, the Mail um, and all the others. Uh, But then you get after 10 seconds of well done, Keir, you know, this is strong leadership. You get this is nowhere near far enough. I think the Times put it in had its editorial. It's a summary, not a quote. Well done, Keir. This is a start, a start. He's kicked out the person who led Labour at the last election. You know what? What? what he, you know, virtually every policy has been changed since 2019. Uh, to his great credit, he's taken control of a party in a way that has been. Remarkable and done in a a fashion that was non-theatrical and non-demonstrative, but taking total control, uh, incredible focus and discipline. A start. You see, these papers, uh, it's a pattern. Uh, Neil Kinnock experienced it when he got praised for taking on militant. Incidentally, on that, he had no choice. That was a wholly different sequence where an outside organisation were infiltrating the Labour Party. Here we're dealing with an MP who's been an MP since 1983, mainly on the back benches until he accidentally won a leadership contest. It's entirely different. But it happened then, you know, when Kinnock took on a militant in that theatrical, uh, glorious party conference speech uh, in 1985 papers, Neil Kinnock showing strong leadership. It's a start You know, and then by the time of an election, they say, well, you know, he's made a start, but what a weird divided party, all these tensions. Uh, It's not yet fit for government. And I noticed the Times sort of clearly won't be content until anyone, uh, half a millimetre to the left of uh, Tony Blair or David Cameron, are expelled. And the Labour manifesto is close to um, the kind of Thatcherite convictions of the Times editorial team. It's not going to happen. And then on the Mail on Sunday, there we had old Dan Hodges, Oh, this is only just a beginning, but you know, he hasn't done anywhere near enough to take on the left. And that is the view of the male. And so, so you become like Macbeth, the Labour leader in these situations where uh, you think, my God, you know, I've, spent a lot of energy doing this uh yeah people now see that i'm in charge and i'm strong and it's a new party and then suddenly uh you get the newspaper saying this is nowhere near enough you've got to go off again and do something else so you know macbeth gets rid of the king and then he has finds he has to kill someone else because they know that macbeth was there. and and on and on and on it goes and as that happens uh, uh there's another sort of weird twist, which is, I've read more about Corbyn over the last few days than for a long time. And he's absolutely been made prominent again uh, by this whole sequence. And, you know, voters who, frankly, uh, I I know in focus groups, his name comes up. And when candidates are knocking on door, his name still comes up. I'm not surprised by that. You know, he, he was an unusual, to put it at its most, mild leader of the opposition, in the history of leaders of the opposition. Not surprising that his name comes up. But when he resigned after the December 2019 election, until he was suspended, I checked it. There were virtually no references to him in the news pages, just once or twice when he made a contribution in the House of Commons. But that was about it. He was fading as a nationally prominent figure. If he stands as an independent, I've no idea whether he will or not, um, he will be one of the main, uh, not main, but a theme of the entire general election campaign. Uh, the national broadcasters will be in Islington North one hell of a lot, and uh, Corbyn will be on the lips of voters because they don't follow politics that much. But there will be enough of a sense of a drama in this constituency in two ways with uh, correspondence and so on for him to be a part. Now, obviously, Starmer and his team calculate this is a good thing because it will highlight he's gone, that uh, with a magisterial uh, sweep, uh, he, uh, he Keir Starmer removed him. But I wonder... Uh, and worry uh, that it will make Labour seem still more, in a way, more disturbed than it is at the moment. There is, you can feel it, a will to win the next general election. But you, this will look weird, I think. And I also think it affects the uh, perception of Keir Starmer. I mean, it's interesting that his ratings are not higher because, to say, in many ways, he is doing a formidable job he is not burdened by something that has burdened and tormented some Labour leaders of the opposition about lack of experience of public office there. He has been a director of public prosecution. He has, as I say, taken control of the Labour Party in a way that's effective. He genuinely loves football. Big test for male leaders of the opposition. Some of them have to pretend to love it. You should see him play five-a-side football. A friend of mine plays with him. Incredibly competitive, but loves, it loves going to football, you know, but the ratings aren't as high. time, people say they're not quite sure who he is. And the arc doesn't quite cohere, partly as a result of this Corbyn's uh, melodrama. There he was in the leadership contest following... Corbyn's uh, resignation, making his 10 pledges. And remember that term pledge is not an aspiration, an objective. A pledge is a pledge is a pledge. All of them echoing Corbynista policies, the 10 pledges. And now we're in a position where the leader is not even allowed, the, the leader, uh, former leader who was going to be prime minister, if they had won uh, any of these elections, 2017, 2019, not even allowed to stand as an MP. The arc doesn't cohere, you know, the successful uh, or winning leaders, uh, the, the, the narrative has a kind of coherence to it. You know, if you look at what Thatcher was saying and doing in the mid to late 70s about oh, in my father's house uh, shop in Grantham, he never, ever spent more than he earned and a country can't spend more than it earns. You know, she was there, And then surprise, surprise, she came to power and did monetarism you know, linked to that economically illiterate homily. But it cohered. It it, it kind of made sense. Blair, from, you know, becoming an MP in 83 uh, to becoming leader in 94, he was involved in uh, policy disputes about the closed shop and one member, one vote. And he was a modernizer and the party has to change and we have to change our policies and our internal procedures. So unsurprisingly, he becomes this uh, self-defined modernising leader. There is a kind of coherence to the arc. The same with Neil Kinnock, who um, didn't support Tony Benn in the deputy leadership in 1981, a big, big moment in that period of the Labour Party. And unsurprisingly, in 1983, he uh, was a leader on the centre-left, but not the Benite left, and it all cohered. Um, Although, as I say, in taking on his party, he then got newspapers saying, oh, the party's obviously too divided, and not ready for government. Those are the kind of reasons that um, I think this is a misjudgment. And also, by the way, Brutally disproportionate, frankly. I mean, to, 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 to he would have been an utterly marginal backbench MP, popping up every now and again, quite politely, probably, on most issues. And of course, you know, maybe uh, the Today programme would have asked Keith Starmer, well, how can Labour change when Jeremy Corbyn's still an MP? Although, I'd, you know, there would have been a bit of that. And no doubt the Tories are going to do it anyway. Say in a hung parliament, the left will have a, hold the balance of power. And maybe that would have been said with more potent See if Corbyn was an MP, but you you uh, you watch them say it anyway. Now they've lost the Tories and the their newspapers, the potency of saying Labour will be under Nicholas Sturgeon's little finger. They will say they'll be under the the left's fingers because he, he unless he gets rid of all of them, and he'll be under pressure to purge more from these papers. And if he does again, the impression will form of a disturbed party still looking. Inwards those things I know many of you uh, disagree with that, but that 's my kind of strategic assessment of of this, but then i don 't agree with one of the arguments on the other side about um, uh, the rights of local parties to uh, select uh, their candidates without the national leadership intervening. It seems to me a completely unrealistic assessment of the role of parties and the role of local democracy, because what they are doing is selecting candidates to be MPs. And when they go into the House of Commons, they are then partly, though not wholly, accountable to the leadership. Um, The leadership will select uh, a shadow cabinet or government. The whips tell them how to vote. Now, you can disagree with all this kind of thing, but that's how it works. And part of what you are doing in this process are selecting people who will be uh, considered ministerial material or in opposition, front bench material, with the skill uh, and uh, agility to frame arguments that bring their party back into the possibility of winning again. And given the pressure on a leader and the attention of the electorate and the media on the leader, the leader has every right to be involved, in my view, in um who gets selected. It needs to be actually a more clearly worked through relationship than is the case at the moment. Michael Crick, who uh, does a brilliant podcast with the uh, wonderful company that I do this podcast with, Podmasters, he's doing this uh, brilliant Twitter service called Tomorrow's MPs. He says that the the centralised intervention in terms of Starmer and selection of candidates has been excessive, uh, heavily excessive. But um, if, and and I say, in my view with Corbyn, it has been brutally disproportionate and counterproductive. But the principle that the leader must can have some input into candidates seems to me very hard to argue against. Indeed, the criteria for selecting candidates probably should be spelt out very clearly as well. And, you know, is it just their commitment to a local area? Is it that they might one day be part of a government and therefore have they got the capacity to put a case on behalf of the party in this wild national media environment? Have they got the Capacity to implement policies and explain why they are implementing the policies. Are they capable of dancing harmoniously with the leadership? Because if not, the whole thing implodes. I mean, these are entirely valid criteria uh, for a leader and his or her allies to be involved with, and it it should be in some ways formalised more. I think with with Labour again. Look, you know, by the way, look at the, the, the local parties, Tory and Labour are in a pretty bad way, you know, the, uh, uh, quite elderly memberships. It's very interesting with Labour, a lot aren't on email, you know. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, um, uh, and with the Tories, look who they've selected as their leader given half a chance. Uh, uh, Rish, uh, not Rishi Sunai, he got it by default. Um, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, and so on how a candidate is selected, the criteria involved, the method of selection, I think is a really interesting, underexplored area. And it shouldn't just be up to, uh, say, at the Islington North Party membership who they select. The leadership have every right. I just happen to disagree with what they're doing in this case. So I find myself in this weird kind of position where I kind of take a contrary View on each of the sort of given elements of it. So I've probably in this podcast, pissed off everyone. So I better move on to your questions, and they are brilliant as ever. Now, just a reminder: uh, if you want to join in our rock and roll politics cooperative in any form—live shows or whatever, questions, points—it's um, Steve Rick one four at iCloud dot com. And the big announcement I make is I've got hundreds of questions, many brilliant questions, actually. At the end of this week, uh, it's a kind of Good Friday. It's the Easter weekend. People uh, will be, the cooperative will be relaxing, you know, going running, sitting on a beach, perhaps uh, with a glass of wine, listening to the podcast. So on Friday, uh, it's going to be a question time where there will be uh, – I'll, I'll put them into themes, uh, more questions. So do put them in this week. Good chance uh, to get them read out and for us to reflect on them. Uh, so I'm going to read a few now, uh, but then question time uh, for the Easter weekend. We did this once before on electoral reform. Do you remember? We finally had the duh, 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 electoral reform special. triggered so many questions. Had to do a question time special, so there's going to be a question time special, Easter treat uh, coming up. But over to your questions now, as I say it's Steve Rick one four at icloud.com And where do we go? We begin with Andrew Anderson from a drizzly Edinburgh. Uh, he says, "Yeah, because the other big thing happened last week. A new first minister in Scotland did a podcast on. We've had loads of questions from the cooperative on it, uh, so we have explored it. But we are going to find out, aren't we, in the coming months what matters more: leadership in terms of the charisma and dynamism and vivacity of Sturgeon, or is it underlying forces? Anyway, Andrew Anders- Anderson from Drizzly Edinburgh." goes for underlying forces. He says, John Curtis has helpfully pointed out for the hard of thinking down south. Thank you, Andrew. We're, we're trying to do our best. The Brexit remains a key driver of political choice in Scotland. In spite of the mass of unionist media hyperventilating about splits in the SNP, it's clear that Hamza Yusuf is well-placed to unite the party. He received 70.5% of all first and second preferences and had a huge lead in endorsements from MSPs and MPs. Of course, he faces significant challenges and the underlying frustration of independent supporters who remain angry about the blocked democratic path but it's by far the best outcome for those of us who support scotland becoming a normal modern country within the eu so there we are that's the case for the underlying forces continuing to propel scotland towards that elusive independence i hope it stops raining andrew um but uh it's gonna be really interesting to see um but uh yeah, you mentioned us lot here, reflecting on the divisions within the SNP. Well, the, the fact that the reflections are taking place because they have become more visible and exposed, I think, should be a cause of concern for you, because the, the genius of uh, Sturgeon and Salmon was to give sense of hope and credibility to that independence cause that kind of papered over the cracks. And the fact that cracks are being talked about even, as well as, frankly, being highlighted in that leadership contest, um, means it's going to require titanic leadership, I reckon, as well as those underlying forces. Thank you, Andrew. Alison Keyes, I listened with interest to your analysis of the Sunak can do it for the Tories trope that's been in certain parts of the media over the past week or so. While I agree with your analysis that it's most likely that Labour will still win the next election, I wonder what you think about the period going forward from there. So much of what Labour might want to do is discussed in terms of that's for the second term. And I've always found that disturbing as it felt like hubris. What do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. And to be honest, Alison and all of us, it kind of almost merits another podcast, on two whole podcasts, on two grounds. One, isn't it interesting that when it comes to Labour uh, proposing change, and this country is shrieking for radical change, or needs it, whether it's shrieking or not is a slightly different matter. But everyone kind of kind of accepts this thing that it has to be slow and incremental, and it would take ten years, even if they win an overall majority but if you look at the conservatives in two thousand and ten they didn 't win an overall majority, and yet within a year had introduced an economic revolution, real term spending cuts, austerity had announced a series of radical public service reforms uh, on the right. Uh, including, uh, although it was done chaotically, a sort of dismantling of the NHS. They had introduced a fixed-term Parliament Act. They had, it's forgotten now, introduced referendums for any future EU treaty. Uh, It was a sort of revolution in about 10 seconds, whereas Labour are being urged and fined because of the whole political and, to some extent, Economic context, huge pressures to move slowly. New Labour in 1997, with a majority of anyone's dreams, um, moved very slowly. I remember, I think it was David Blunkett saying to me, uh, We've hit the ground reviewing. You know, they held a review before then announcing quite a few of their. Policies uh, in terms of hubris. Um, there's a risk if you frame it like, "Oh, we'll do this in our second term." Voters say, "What the hell? You going on about your second term? We haven't given you a first yet." But I think if you frame it in a way that says, "Look, you know, these are very ambitious, and we're not going to do it like Liz Truss in a way that blows the economy in the first ten seconds." You can do it. That you can do that, uh, Alison, without it looking hubristic. But Go too slowly and you won't get that second term, I think. I mean, you, you know, in 97, the economy was growing by uh, more than 2%. Um, although public services were pretty dire, they were nowhere near as dire as they are now. And I think voters will want to see improvements in health, public transport, especially in this, the so-called red wall area levelling up has to be about improved transport as well as all the other things that i think national uh child care scheme needs to be up and running although i've got a very good question on that uh which come today or in our question time special so but it is interesting and and the challenges the labour government will face uh will be immense and they yeah Anyway, thank you, Um, and more to come on these themes. Uh, We're going back to Scotland, quite a few from Scotland. Uh, Hugh Davis from Aberdeen. Uh, Still really enjoying your podcast. Oh, thank you. But I've traded in listening to the podcast with some non-alcoholic wine for walks in the beautiful Aberdeenshire countryside while listening. Ah, yeah. I think that sounds better than the non-alcoholic wine, Hugh. Anyway, uh, Hugh writes uh, as he walks along the uh, paths of Aberdeenshire, two of your themes have been constant over the past few weeks, the toxicity introduced into British politics under the Johnson and Trust governments and also the need for Rishi Sunak to create political space for himself. By that I meant uh, to show he was different from them, to show that the whole thing had moved on big time in various different ways. What is your view on a radical move by Sunak in which he puts a red line through all proposed elevations to the House of Lords? Might not this be a useful signal to the public of the end to the unending additions to the Lords which devalues the institution? Uh, I believe Blair and Brown didn't submit honours lists at all. Yeah, you see, this is interesting, and it's one of the reasons why all this talk is such an easy column to write, you know, don't write Sunak and the Conservatives off. I've now read about four of these columns. But he's got many challenges, one of which is Johnson's resignation list, Truss's resignation list, people piling into the Lords. And um, one way he could uh, symbolise distance would be to challenge the appointments when they come. I don't think he will, and I don't think he probably would be wise to do so. It's too emotive, and um, although he needs to show distance with these predecessors, there are probably other ways he can do it. But something's got to be done about this thing. I mean, more people work in the House of Lords than anywhere else these days. You know, I kind of, virtually everyone I know is a lord. And there are more of them to come. But I've got a feeling he won't do anything. And it's probably too provocative to do anything. Martin Jones from Birmingham. Uh, Fascinating and thought-provoking listening to Danny Blanchflower. Yeah, that was our last interview podcast. We've got lots of great interviews coming up. And he said, what a midfield it was. Danny Blanchflower, John White, Dave Mackay. He's referring to Spurs. And Danny Blanchflower, sometimes David. But he calls himself Danny Blanchflower. Uh, and, you know, partly in homage to the great Spurs footballer. Anyway, Martin says, my question does involve Tottenham Hotspur. You think, God, I'm I'm so exhausted at the moment. Season ticket holder at Spurs, team in crisis, whilst trying to navigate the murky fields of British politics. And he says, my question involving Spurs is, despite appointing countless managers, Spurs have never won the Premier League. Labour's record of success over the same period isn't much better, as despite also having numerous leaders, only one has ever won a general election, albeit three times. As a Spurs season ticket holder, can you draw any parallels? Um, Yeah, yeah, there are. Actually, Spurs is uh, for the uh, – sorry if you're not interested in football. We're, uh, I never indulged. Football is quite like politics in its unpredictability and uh, sort of wild shapelessness. Yeah, there are. It's called dysfunctionality. You know, the Labour Party is pretty dysfunctional uh, as a party. <laughs> you just listen to the first 20 minutes of this podcast. Um, uh, and Spurs are totally dysfunctional. And, and, and dysfunctionality makes it harder to win, frankly. Not that the Tories are functional. Far from it, indeed. I think they're in a, a, a state of greater existential crisis at the moment, actually, uh, for different reasons. And now over to Henry, who says, without a surname, Henry emails without surnames. Uh, it strikes me that politicians of the generation of Heath and Wilson Healy had been through the Second World War and understood the vulnerability of the UK, both militarily but also in terms of raw materials, e.g. oil and other commodities. It's often noted that older people voted for Brexit, but those older people were normally born after the war in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. How far do you think the decision to leave the EU was taken precisely because the generation who understood the UK's vulnerability had largely passed on? And being replaced by people who had grown up in the era of North Sea oil, etc., um, etc., et without realising the need to pull sovereignty in quite the same way. Uh, Henry, no, I don't. I, to be honest, I don't agree with you. I mean, th- these were big figures you quoted there, but they—they they were big uh, figures who had fought in the war, and many of them on the Labour side were very wary of Europe. You know, Jim Callaghan was wary. Wilson was quite wary. Healy was not a great enthusiast, though he was pro. And so I don't think it is quite that. Um, but I know what you mean, that that internationalism certainly explains Ted Heath's passion for Europe. God, yeah, you know, Heath, deeply flawed figure. But if he was leading from 2010, would still be in Europe. He wouldn't have flaffed around with a referendum because he thought he was going to win. Shall we do one more now and then a question time special later in the week with some amazing uh, themes coming up? Uh, I've got to get Helen the baker in, Helen Gordon, because she uh, bought, and I know some of you had the same experience, a live stream ticket for King's Place the other week. Um, And there were what we call technical problems, uh, (laughs) which she's going to come to in her email uh but before then uh listening to this week's pod, when you were speculating about the use or not of a second chamber yes yeah, some one of the rock and roll politics cooperative wrote in suggesting that the solution to house of lords reform the never-ending conundrum was just to abolish a second chamber simpler cleaner and i found that kind of quite interesting as a solution um but anyway back to helen uh the baker uh so-called because She bakes brilliant bread while listening to the podcast. She says, I'm watching the massive demonstrations in Israel against their proposed judicial reforms, a part of which are a consequence of there not being a second chamber. All I would say, this is in Israel, of course, all I would say uh, is be careful what you wish for in piecemeal reform of parliamentary structures under a populist government. Yeah, uh, there are always... Uh, Helen is right whenever there is a constitutional reform, there are consequences which you really have to think through i don't know whether it necessarily means uh Helen uh, that a constitutional reform as dramatic as uh reducing Parliament to one chamber necessarily leads to what is happening in Israel at the moment. Um, but it is cited, some others have emailed and cited and said, look at Israel, this one chamber doesn't work, there needs to be the checks and balances of a second chamber. But as the original emailer pointed out, how, what form does this second chamber take? You know, so Gordon Brown has proposed the abolition of the House of Lords, um, and it caused an immediate kind of frisson, No, you know, not least in the House of Lords. You know and then you have the idea, um, that a Labour government begins and uses up so much energy trying to work out what to do instead and all the rest of it, you've just got rid of it. There is a simplicity to it, but there are, of course, consequences. Now, Helen mentions this Say, I bought a virtual ticket to the online streaming for your recent King's Play show on the Never Ending Tour, which failed to work, and I wasn't the only one. Uh, next time I'll try and come along, yeah, that would be great, uh, with bread in hand, wow, God, thank you, consequences of it not working, that uh, so you're going to come with bread, uh, uh, fantastic, oh yeah, no bread baking over the next few days, it's Passover, yeah, okay, we can, we'll wait, we'll wait, and I'm sorry about these technical problems, I was mean, not out of my control, and I think they were addressed one way or Another, Yeah, so we've got loads, loads more to go through um, during our question time special. And so I'm going to put them in themes and we will delve even deeper than usual whilst on our Easter holidays, perhaps a long walk. It was on a long walk during her Easter holiday that Theresa May decided to call an early election in 2017. What will we all do in those days? Um, well, for sure, we're going to get together so thank you so much for tuning in if you are having a break enjoy it uh keep working things out and uh, as i say do send in your points and questions we're going to have more space at the end of this week um and uh yeah see you all very soon take care bye